You are freer than you think. It's like the ultimate form of freedom. You expound upon that freedom to develop on this planet. True freedom comes from within. It's the ability. Thinking to myself, I can help you or I can destroy you. Man is a two-time felon. I work really hard and I've been a, I've been a life learner. When things are feeling tough, let yourself be surprised. The world favors risk-taking. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Freedom Pact. Today on the show, we are joined by Professor B.J. Fogg. B.J. Fogg is an American social scientist who is currently a research associate at Stanford University. B.J. is the founder and director of the Stanford Persuasive Technology Lab, which was later renamed as the Behavior Design Lab. BJ has spent 20 years researching and teaching insights about human behavior, which BJ then turned all of that knowledge into his New York Times best-selling book, Tiny Habits. In this episode, we discuss what a habit is, why it really matters, why New Year's resolutions fail, how to make and break habits, the difference between a habit and an addiction, the role that motivation and neurochemicals like dopamine play, and why, if you were looking to build a new flossing habit, you should start with only one tooth. I hope that you enjoy this episode with the hugely impressive B.J. Fogg. Ma'am, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. How would you define a habit? <laughs> I love this question. <laughs> um, the word habit is a mess. It means lots of things. It means too many things. It's an ambiguous word. But when I talk about habits, and when most people think about habits, they think about a specific behavior they do automatically. Uh, without deciding, without deliberating, without thinking very much. So the way you tie your shoe, that's a habit. The side of the bed you sleep on. You don't walk into the bedroom and go, oh, which side of the bed do I get in? You just automatically do it. Those are strong habits. On the other end of the spectrum are behaviors we decide about, like what am I going to wear today? What am I going to take? What am I going to eat for lunch? Those are not habits. Those are decisions. And the best way to think about behavior is the level or habits anyway is how automatic they are. And it's a spectrum. So it's not like something is a decision and suddenly becomes a habit. Think of it as a spectrum. And the dimension is automaticity. How automatically do you do it? And so this is in some, some ways why the word habit is kind of a mess because it's sort of like it's not just a habit. It's sort of weak habit, stronger habit, super strong habit, extremely strong habit, like how you tie your shoe. Uh, and we use the word habit to mean all of those things, including general principles that aren't behaviors at all, like the habit of being grateful. Well, that's not a specific behavior. It's a general quality, but we still use the habit, the word habit for that. So it's kind of a mess, but we're stuck with it and I'm owning it, embracing it. And yep, habits are really important. <laughs> I love that. So there's almost like an unconscious element to it. Yeah, that's one way to think about it is, you know, for the strongest of habits, you just go on autopilot. You may not even remember you did it. And that's an indicator that, boom, that was super automatic. Yeah, like almost as if like the body has become stronger than the mind. <laughs> yes. I love it. I love or it, it so, takes over. Yeah. Yeah, it takes over. Yeah. So I guess the other part of the title is tiny. And I guess this is the major concept of your book. So I suppose... My question to you on this would be, why did you propose an idea of tiny habits in, instead of, say, you know, the, the perhaps the typical new year, new me <laughs> type yeah. of idea? Well, because that's what worked for me. So even though I'm a behavior scientist and I've run a lab at Stanford since 1998 and I teach at Stanford in my own life, uh, I had I wasn't doing as good as I thought I should be doing. And this was about 2008, 2009. And this insight came to me. And I was thinking about flossing. It's like, BJ, you know how to floss all your teeth. So flossing all your teeth is not the problem. The problem is you don't do it automatically. Oh, 
So scale it back to just one tooth and then figure out how to make that automatic. So there was an insight where it's like, it's not about the big behavior, it's about the automaticity. So let me focus on how do I make a behavior automatic and I'm gonna be better at it if I make it super, super easy to do. And then I just started hacking my own behavior and creating all these habits once I started putting the pieces together. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is so easy to create habits this way. And then as you floss one tooth, you can, once it's automatic, you can floss all of them. So it really was that insight. And it, it was exactly on that topic. It was about flossing. Did you actually, like on that point, just literally just start flossing one tooth? Yeah, I did. <laughs> I did. And and then I'd floss one tooth and I'd look in the mirror and I'd say, victory. Like, and it came at a time in my life where I was facing lots of challenges. And the victory was almost like a statement of relief to myself in the morning. Because what was going through my head is, today's going to be so hard. I have so many challenging things. Everything could go wrong today, but I got this done. I flossed one tooth victory my day is not a total uh loss and that's and then that victory statement and we'll talk about celebration later i didn't i I stumbled across the importance of helping yourself feel successful it was really a desperation move at that time for me though yeah i love that idea that emotion plays in this um and i suppose that when you just set yourself the goal of just doing uh say just flossing one tooth when you get that yeah. that you know that reward hit from doing it, the dopamine release, you're thinking to yourself, "Oh, well, okay, I can just carry on." It was like when I was doing my dissertation and I was trying to set myself small goals of, you know, yeah. just writing X amount, and then you do it and you're like, "Oh, well, I've I've already overcome the procrastination, so I can keep going." Exactly. So some people think the tiny habits method is you do one tooth and you do two teeth and three teeth. <laughs> no, it's not that. You just set the base, the bar so low, one tooth, and you can do more whenever you want. Day one, you can floss all your teeth, but you don't have to. It's just one. And if you do more than one tooth, you count that as extra credit. You count that as you're going above and beyond. So you're saying, man, I'm an overachiever. And like you saw with your dissertation, and that was my experience as well with my dissertation, was just do the tiniest part every day. And then guess what happens? You end up doing a lot more than you intended. It just gets you started. And that in some ways uh, is the psychology of tiny habits. If we just scale this back to the, so let's look at the, you know, the new you, new me, I use the crazy statistics around it. You know, I mean, most people fail after, I want to say something like 20 days, something like this. I'm not, I don't have the actual statistics. Uh, So why are these habits so hard to stick to? And I guess, you know, why do those New Year's resolutions fail? Yeah, so in the book, Tiny Habits, I map out more systematically the reasons for that, but let me give a few here. Uh, One systematic problem is that people aren't even picking specific habits to do as their resolutions. They're picking vague abstractions, like I want to be more mindful. Okay, well, that's a nice starting point, but that's not a behavior, and that's not a habit. That's a That's an aspiration, that's what I would call it. So that's one problem. The next problem would be they don't make it easy enough. And here's why that matters. If a behavior is hard, you can do it only when your motivation is high. And when your motivation drops, you can't do that hard behavior. And this is what my behavior model shows with the action line. And so if you set yourself up at the beginning there with a specific behavior, I'm gonna meditate 60 minutes using this method right here. Well, it's a hard behavior because it takes 60 minutes. So even though it's specific, it's hard. So when your motivation drops or when your motivation goes to other problems in your life, you won't do the behavior and that won't become a habit. So the, the hack in tiny habits is to make it so radically easy that it doesn't require much motivation at all. Your motivation can be low, you can still floss a tooth. Your motivation can be low, you can still take three calming breaths as your meditation, and boom, you do that, victory, you got it done, and if you do more, extra credit. How much of a behavior does consist of habits? (laughs) I've seen stats on that, but because habit is such an ambiguous word, Mm. and there's no 
sharp delineation between a behavior that's a habit and a behavior that's not. Um, I don't really buy into any of the numbers. I mean, it's a, it's, it's a lot, right? I mean, we, we're, we do so many things. Like even now as I'm talking to you, I'm, I'm, I'm using my hands so people will understand me better. So of course you can't even see me, but it's a habit. And I'm not deciding to use hand gestures. It just happens the way I pronounce words. That's a habit. Um, then you get into things that are more subtle, like blinking my eyes. Is that a habit or is that a reflex or is that something else? And so, yes, we're very automated in many, many, many things we do. Uh, and I'm not going to stand by any number or any particular research on that because I think the word habit is so ambiguous. There can't be a definitive number. There seems to be this real um, push towards habits and routines and systems lately. Obviously, I mean, yourself, uh, Charles DeHigg, James Clear, Nereal, you know, all you guys have really brought it to the forefront. And there's been specific models of habits, you know, the things that include uh, trigger, a cue, routine, reward. Yours seems to really focus on the reward at the end of this, more so than anyone else's work, which I've read. Yeah. Could you talk about that and, you know, what, why yeah. you focused on that? Yeah, well, let's be clear about, I have strong opinions about all of this, of course. Uh, Nereal uh, was not my student at Stanford, despite what publications say. He did go to Stanford, but he came and worked with me in my boot camp, which is for industry people, and then he got interested in habits. Uh, James Clear did my free five-day tiny habits program in 2012 and got really interested in habits from there. And you'll see a lot of his blogging and a lot of his book draws on my work. Hmm. Uh, Charles Duhigg is a journalist that popularized uh, what he calls the habit loop. Those concepts are not new. The drawing in a circle of it is even actually not that new. There's a 1941 publication that takes those concepts and it's a semi-circle, but still it shows the relationship between those things. The exciting thing about all of this is the general public is so much more interested in habits than they were 10 or even 20 years ago. And habit used to be a word that was mostly seen as negative, bad habits. Oh, I got to get rid of these habits and I have to be mindful. And if I'm doing things automatically, I'm not mindful. And da, 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 da. But now habits is mostly, from my perspective and what I'm seeing, a positive word. And that wasn't the case uh, a while ago. So the work of Duhigg, I think, was important in getting people to be interested in habits and talking about habits. So even though in that book I'm not seeing anything new conceptually, I think it helps change the conversation among everyday people and change the valence or how we think about that word habit. You know, you mentioned, say, something like a 60-minute meditation, right? And mm -hmm. when I think about that, I think to myself, that, would be, that is such a hard habit to form because, yeah. I suppose, I meditate for 60 minutes and I suppose that there's no first-order consequence, really. Um, yeah. So I wonder, could we just talk about that, about the power, you know, how powerful yeah. that reward is uh, from our behaviors? Yeah. So one of the chapters in the book is entitled Emotions Create Habits. And I knew that chapter would be a controversial one, and I knew people would be upset with me for writing about it, but uh, it's accurate. And I have to, I'm obligated to share uh, what I see as the truth. And essentially what that chapter does is it says, hey, and I only say this in about two paragraphs because I wanted to not upset people too deeply, but I basically say this notion about repetition creating habits, that's hogwash. That repetition does not create a habit. It's emotions that create habits. What I don't say in the chapter, because in the book, I focus on here's a new way of thinking about behavior. Here's a new way of designing behavior. It's all my work. It's all original. It's my stuff that I've uh, innovated and tested and with thousands and thousands of people since 2011, including James Clare in the tests. Um, the, it, what I don't say in the book, because I don't want to go off and just say how all these things are wrong. I want to say how to do it right. But I'll say it here is when you look at the research, say that James Clare cites for 66 days or other people have cited, it's a 2009 study 
that shows that habit strength correlates with number of days. It does not show that repetitions create the habit. So the mistake that's being made in other books and in headlines and so on is the idea that repetition creates habits. It doesn't. It correlates with habits. Um, that's a lot like saying, like, I could do research and say, hey, I did research and I found that the more time people spend in the gym, the healthier they are. And the headline is, go spend time in the gym, you'll be healthier. Well, as you know, it's not time spent in the gym, it's what you do in the gym that is causal for being healthier. So in the same way, this research has been uh, misinterpreted uh, and widely publicized and widely misled people where they think, oh, I just have to do it for 66 days and then it'll wire in. That's not true. So in the chapter, Emotions Create Habits, I try to set the record straight where it's, no, it's the emotional experience you have when you do a behavior that then wires it in as a habit. So if you have a positive emotion as you do a new behavior, let's say writing with a purple pen for the first time, you write and you're like, oh my gosh, my handwriting is neater and I'm feeling like I'm expressing myself better. Those feelings of success will then make me reaching for the purple pen more automatic. And if those feelings are strong enough, and if they happen at the time that I'm using the purple pen, they can't happen 30 days later. Then as I look at the pens, when I have the pens on my desk right now, I have a purple one and a blue one, the habit would be I just reach for the purple one. I don't even think about what color. So that, that's how the habits form. So in the book, I mean, yes, you're right to use the word reward, but in the book I go after that word and I say, you know what, let's not use the word reward because it's ambiguous. And too often people think of a reward like, oh, I will go walking every day for 30 days. And at the end of the 30 days, I will reward myself with a new pair of walking shoes. And people will think that, but that's not a reward in the technical sense. That's actually an incentive or a prize. But people will use the word reward for that. So in Tiny Habits, I say, let's not use that reward. What we're designing for is a feeling of success you self-reinforce through a feeling of success. And so reward is actually not part of the vocabulary of uh, Tiny Habits or my broader work, Behavior Design, deliberately not part of the vocabulary because it's amb ambiguous and can be misleading. If I'm understanding this correctly, yeah. that it's really the neurochemical cocktail that we get from doing something Yes. You know, repeatedly instead of, say, just doing it for 21 or 66 days. Yes, yes, exactly. And if the first time you do it, that emotion is strong enough, I call it an instant habit. It's like one and done. For example, um, easy example to give. The first time I used Uber, you know, at that time it was a decision. Do I take a cab? Do I walk? Do I use this new thing called Uber? I used it once. I pushed a few buttons and this, and at the time it was only black cars, this black car pulled up in front of the hotel and I felt like I was like, I had superpowers. Like here was this magic carpet. That was amazing. Mm -hmm. So the next morning when I went out to get to where I had to speak, boom, the habit was already wired in. The first experience in using Uber had such a, a strong emotional impact of feeling successful, of essentially giving me a superpower that it didn't take repeating it over and over for it to wire and it was one and done. And that's how some of our habits form both good habits and bad habits. If the emotional, if your brain connects an intense emotion with that action, then there is this, it can substantially wire into our lives and we no longer decide how am I gonna get to you know, the conference venue where I'm giving my talk, it's boom, Uber. I did it yesterday. It gave me superpowers. You just pull it out, call up Uber, and you don't even think about walking or hailing a cab that just wired in because the emotion was immediate and it was intense. Those are the two characteristics. Yeah, and I, I think on that point, you know, I mean, it, it's both great to know and also hugely worrying, right? I mean, something I've been thinking about a lot of on this would be first, second, and third order consequences. Mm -hmm. So I suppose in regards to your work, pretty much all of the uh, quote-unquote negative habits are all things which I imagine in the first instance 
would feel great, but in the second and third yeah. order are all terrible for us. Like, let me give an example of, um, say, something like watching pornography, right? I mean, yep. that is an absolute super stimuli. In the first order, it feels great. And then in the second order, perhaps it's feelings of shame, perhaps it's disconnection. Yep. Um, so, yeah, so, I mean, that's, <laughs> that's great you know, to know and, and worrying. And, and yeah, it, it's good to know for forming positive habits. I mean, positive, what we consider positive negative habits, the, they form in the same way. And so it's good to know that, wow, if I want to make uh, you know, drinking more water into a habit, if I can have this very intense, strong emotion as I do this new behavior, but it's also troublesome. It's worrisome. Let me give an example from my own life on a negative habit. In writing the book, Tiny Habits, um, every story in the book is true. I mean, some books I found make stuff up, but I'm a scientist. Everything has to be true. So we did a lot of reaching out and getting collecting stories and interviewing. And I found out that there is a lot of people lay in bed in the morning and scroll through social media. That was a surprise to me because I, I never did that. But apparently a lot of people do. So one day I thought, I'm going to do this. I'm going to just sit in bed and pull out my iPad and scroll through social media. And guess what? It felt so good. <laughs> it was like, oh, no, you're never doing that again, BJ, because this is a slippery slope. This is such a, you know, there's just, uh, it's hard to describe. It was such a positive feeling of just being chilling and scrolling through stuff i knew i couldn't go back there so that's not like drinking or pornography or drugs or whatever but it's the same dynamic and i recognize uh if you don't want this as a habit you don't ever do this again you're not going to lay in bread and scroll because you do not want that as a habit are there any differences between a habit and an addiction yes but uh, both the words are ambiguous. So there's a theme here, right? I'm, I'm really into precision and systems and specificity. And one of the problems we have and have had for decades with behavior change is our language has not been accurate and specific. It's been ambiguous. So both of those words, habit and addiction, can mean different things. But I do think there is a difference and I don't pretend to be an expert in addiction, so I don't want to say, here's the difference uh, with authority, because there's people, that's what they do. And I do think the different kinds of addictions are different from each other, whereas all habits form in the same way. They start tiny, they find a place in our life where they fit naturally, and they're reinforced by emotion. Good and bad habits all do that. So they all start the same way. But the way you get rid of unwanted behaviors, unwanted habits, seems to be different methods for different kinds of habits. It's not just one way. And so that domain of, and I call it untangling bad habits, not breaking, untangling, is far more complicated than creating habits. And, oh, I'll just share this. Uh, I don't think I've even shared this at all in public. Mm -hmm. One thing I'm doing, so I live part of the time in Maui, and one of the things that really interests me is how the plants root into the earth. And there are different rooting strategies. Some plants have a deep tap root, some spread out and so on. And I'm thinking there's about eight different ways that plants root into the earth. Now, hang on, I will tie this back to addictions. And so when you look at that, the way that you grow any plant is the same. You take a little seed, you find the right spot, you nurture it, it grows and it roots. But the way you take a plant or a tree out of the earth is going to be different depending on the rooting strategy. So what my sense and hypothesis is for these things we call bad habits, the way you get rid of them depends on how they've rooted into our life. Some will have a deep tap root, some will spread out like Bermuda grass and you'll have to take every little single one out and so on. And so one of the things I want to do, I probably won't get to it this year, but at some point is liken unwanted habits to the rooting strategies of plants and see if there's a connection and see if we can take habits uh, like gambling, porn, scrolling in bed, drinking too much, smoking and saying, oh, this smoking habit has rooted like Bermuda grass. Here's how you get rid of it. This habit of you know, speeding on the highway on the way to work, 
oh, that's just like a taproot. That's like, boom, one and done. You can get rid of that. So I'm thinking there's a connection. Uh, but the, take, the, the takeaway point here is that the getting rid of unwanted behaviors is more complicated, just like uh, uprooting all the plants in your yard is more complicated than getting them started. Yeah, I, I, I want to delve into this because this is so fascinating to me. So as we mentioned, pornography, I'll give one example about maybe two years ago or something after I read uh, Gary Wilson's book, Your Brain on Porn. This was something which I, I didn't want to associate anymore. So it wasn't until really I tried to, you know, essentially quit that I realized quite how, you know, the addictive properties that they had. So mm. I, what I started doing was every time I would watch it, I would force myself to go out for a run after it. And I hate running. I, just, <laughs> I hate running. And now it's been 20 months and I haven't watched it since. And, wow. you know, so I would love to know, you know, from your life, if you could give um, perhaps two different examples. And I appreciate this is a big question of you perhaps untangling bad habits in yeah. perhaps different sectors. Yeah, I, I will. Well, they both have to do with food. Uh, one is popcorn. Uh, I had a serious popcorn addiction. And I know people are going to laugh at me for saying that. And but it was a big deal to me. And it couldn't go into my book because both my agent and my uh, editor said, no, you're not going to talk about popcorn as a serious <laughs> addiction when people reading this have like life-threatening addictions. But for me, it was serious. And the reason it was so deeply rooted was as a child. I grew up in a home where we worked pretty much all the time. Uh, it was a Mormon household. And the Mormons have this you know, work ethic. You work and work and work and work and work. And that's how we were raised. And we almost never relaxed. But when we did relax, there'd be popcorn. So popcorn to me was this symbol of I'm off the clock. I don't have to be working. I don't have to feel guilty. And so as an adult, then popcorn became that. So anytime I was like made popcorn, it's like, nope, I don't think about work. So that habit was really hard to untangle. And I tried various ways of making it really hard to do and then making really healthy popcorn and da, 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 da. But then one day it was like, nope, I'm done with this. I am got rid of all the paraphernalia for popcorn. It wasn't the first time I tried it. This was probably the fourth or fifth over a course of years where it's like, no more popcorn, tell my partner, no more popcorn, no popcorn in the house um, and so on. And then uh, got rid of that addiction or compulsion. Then it was the second example would would be with alcohol. Now, my relationship with alcohol was not as serious as my relationship with popcorn. And I know that might sound funny, but with popcorn, I really struggled and it really was creating problems for me with alcohol. Not so much. Um, but I still there was a time when I was like, you know what? I don't think this is really serving me. You know, it's not like it's getting in, in the way of my relationships or my work or anything else, but it's not optimizing me. So I'm done with it. And I knew from my popcorn experience and how to, from my psychology, it was like, no, this is not moderating because I tried that with popcorn. I'm going to just do a little bit of popcorn. And that never worked for me. So when I looked at alcohol and thought, okay, can I just moderate, like just do one glass? Um, I toyed around with that a little bit. And I was like, no, 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 no. For this kind of thing for you, BJ, which you know about yourself is it's, you got to go 100%. You just got to stop entirely. No, you're not going to ever drink. You know, you're done. You're done. And so I did. I just stopped. Uh, and, and oh, I can talk about that journey a little bit. I haven't talked about that much in public. But fast forward, um, it was easier than I thought. Uh, yes, there were some challenges. Most of the challenges were social. It wasn't, you know, the social, how do I navigate social events without drinking that? So I used tiny habits to deal with that pretty well. And I didn't even involve my partner. I just stopped on my own. And then one day he's like, uh, you're not drinking. What's up? And I said, ah, it's not really, you know, I'm at first I said, I'm not going to drink tonight because I didn't want to make a big pronouncement, you know? And then it was like, uh, yeah, I decided I'm just not going to drink. It's not serving me. Uh, and I need to be a hundred percent every morning and, so, but for some people, I'm sure alcohol is very, very challenging. And it seemed challenging for me before I started. And there were those moments 
where it was challenging, but because I had practiced behavior change so much, behavior change is a skill and tiny habits teaches you those skills. And because I had done that for years, I knew the skills of change. And so I could bring those skills to something more challenging like alcohol. And so the, the big surprise, so I, 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 you know, I knew I could untangle that and I knew I could do it. Um, the big surprise was how many benefits I got from not drinking. I, I didn't realize there's so many benefits. And I remember thinking and even telling my partner, how come nobody explained to me how great it is? All the benefits of not drinking. And one of them was I'd wake up in the morning 100%. I was never, ever even slightly compromised by alcohol in the morning. So I could get up here in Maui, I surf. If I'm in California, I can do a business meeting and just never have any issues and never worry that I won't be 100% first thing in the morning. So I think each addiction is works in its own way. And so if we take pornography, for example, I think an expert in helping people untangle that is so important. And that's going to be different than popcorn. And that's going to be different from you know, diet soda or whatever. So having experts in a very specific area that will guide people is so important. Yeah, sure. And I'd love to delve into the challenges you faced overcoming uh, that alcohol habit. Um, so just a few questions which come to my mind. Um, mm-hmm. In the social, you know, in the social events, I suppose, how did you respond or did you get cravings when you felt the trigger? Yeah, it was more social awkwardness of here's the hostess. She's offering me some wine. It's nice wine. I knew that was going to happen, right? But I'd already practiced this a few times at business events. Like say I was speaking at the end of the the mixer or during the mixer, I'd have to get up and speak. So of course I'm not drinking before I give a talk. And so um, I, I went... I remember specifically, there's, uh, I went to this party, uh, you know, some group of friends and alcohols, you know, wine with dinner is always part of it. And I just went in and I said, you know, Dorothy, I'm not drinking tonight. I'm going to stick with sparkling water. Just out of the gate, told her, I'm not drinking tonight. I'll just stick with sparkling water. That, bam, done. There was no pressure throughout the rest of the evening to drink or whatnot. And, and probably, and this happened a few times and got easier and easier. And I just knew knew right out of the gate when I go in or as soon as I'm offered something, I say, oh no, I'm going to stick with sparkling water tonight. Bam, done. It's like what? Seven words, eight words, something like that. And then you're done. Now, sometimes you'll say, why aren't you drinking? uh, Well, I just decided I'm not going to, or I need to be 100% tomorrow morning. You know, just have some response. And then now, last week, uh, so, so this was two years ago that I untangled this and so great and it's been easier to maintain than i you know than people talk about but i'm not sure my case is representative of everybody so i don't want to pretend like it is um i think everybody has their own journey in their own way but i think two points number one man you can do it if somebody listening to this is struggling with alcohol you can do it uh nobody's perfect in the journey And then the second point is find the resource or the expert who can help you with that particular addiction that you're struggling with for sure. Um, And get guidance from somebody who knows how to untangle this unwanted habit. Yeah, this is is an interesting one. And I remember when I was in university and I pretty much spent, you know, my first two years just going pretty wild. And then, (laughs) you know, I guess to year three in and I'm like, okay, it's time to settle down. And as a side note, I'm not saying that this is representative of all, but what I noticed in terms of the alcohol was that when I stopped drinking or going out as much, that it naturally filtered out a lot of the people that I was associating with. And I realized that I'd formed a lot of friendships around going out and getting drunk. So on this note, I would say that just sort of saying no and taking a step back can be a huge uh, reflection point on perhaps the type of people that one is associated with. And you can just look at the sort of events. I mean, if you take away the alcohol, I suppose, what's left of the friendship? <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, yeah. 
but yeah, but I, I suppose um, just getting back to where we were in the conversation, um, I'd love to pick up on uh, this idea that we touched on earlier, right? So we were discussing something like meditation. So we know that in your framework that we, that really, that the key element is this, you know, this neurochemical cocktail. We want to feel mm-hmm. the emotion after doing it. This mm-hmm. is why things like pornography, uh, you know, social media, they, these have these addictive properties. Is there any way that we could positively reinforce uh, a reward from doing a habit, even if there's not necessarily an instant payoff? Yeah, meditation is the perfect example for this, and actually the hardest. So you picked a great one. Um, yes, the answer is yes. Um, and you, you can we can apply the principles of tiny habits to this. So first of all, take the behavior. Maybe you want to meditate 30 minutes a day. Well, guess what? That's going to require lots of motivation. Scale it back to just three mindful breaths. You can do more, but the habit is just three breaths. So super easy. Next, find where it fits naturally in your life. What does it come after? Where do you slot in these three breaths? So be very clear about where it fits. And then the third hack is the one about emotions. How do you help yourself feel successful? Meditation is challenging here. Because unlike writing with a purple pen, where it's like, oh, I like the color, da, 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 and you're getting the feedback immediately from using the purple pen, you don't get that from meditation. In fact, you kind of get the opposite. You kind of sit and go, oh my gosh, my brain is crazy. All this chatter going on, and I can't calm it. So you're not feeling successful. You're feeling the opposite, which makes meditation particularly challenging to wire in a habit. So if you can shift your expectations away from focusing on how busy your brain is because you're not going to feel successful there at the beginning to something else of like, uh, I'll give an example. You might align as soon as you sit down to meditate and as you take the breath, if you think very, very vividly of what important purpose in your life is meditation helping you achieve. And for me, it would be, I'm going to be a better teacher because teaching is so important to me. So by training my brain, I'm going to be a better teacher. So one way I could help myself feel successful as I sit to meditate at the very beginning and also at the end, I would focus very clearly on good for you, BJ, by doing this, you're going to be a better teacher. And then I don't really pay attention to how scattered my brain is and I don't feel bad about that. Instead, I embrace the positive emotion of I'm doing a behavior I'm wiring in a habit that's going to help me achieve something that's really important to me. You're giving yourself your own uh, your yes. own reward. I love it. I love it. Well, let me share something else here. I haven't shared much. Um, you're self-reinforcing. That's what you're doing. Now, I have avoided the term self-reinforcement. I didn't put it in the book. And even from the beginning and teaching Tiny Habits from 2011, I didn't use self-reinforcement. The reason is because that term was already used in the 70s by psychologists for a different concept. And I didn't want to, remember back to the theme of being precise here, I didn't want to use words that were imprecise. Now that I look back though, I think I probably should have talked about the technique of celebration, you know, helping yourself feel successful as self-reinforcement. That calls up aspects of behaviorism. That was another reason I didn't want to bring it up. The behaviorists wouldn't they didn't acknowledge emotions. That wouldn't be part of what they were doing. So there's some reasons I didn't use it, but I think it is helpful for people to think, oh, I can self-reinforce and I can do it deliberately. And one way to self-reinforce is to do the thing the BJ Vogue calls celebration. And one type of celebration is to think very clearly and specifically about how this behavior is helping you achieve something that's very, very important to you. And you self-reinforce in that way. Yeah, this this is interesting. And I wonder if this falls into this category. So one of the things in which I was trying to um, get as a, you know, trying to incorporate into my routine was I wanted to start taking daily cold showers. Mm. Um, now, these are, <laughs> these are particularly tough because obviously, I mean, you know, they're horrible. Um, yeah. But what I noticed was that as soon as I started, uh, you know, going and doing them, um, mm-hmm. I just felt this overwhelming sense of pride. 
and I'm in this Good shower and I'm you. going, Joe, you're a bad man. You do what you say you're gonna do. You're you know, awesome. Yeah, you you stick to your word. <laughs> and what I notice, and what I notice right is that that it's like it it sort of becomes like this. I, I'm not sure what the, what the the words are for this, but it, it has such a, a reinforcement effect in my brain of, yeah. I say I'm going to do this, and then I do it. And and yeah. I wonder if this sort Beautiful. of has a knock-on effect, because it's sort of tricking my brain to thinking, as soon as there's something on my list, I go and do it, and then I find myself more likely to do other things. But also the same in reverse. If I don't do something, I'm more likely not to do the next thing. Yeah. Well, Joe, let's let's take that example. It's a perfect example of the cold showers. The subtitle of my book is what you just explained, the small changes that change everything. One small change you did was you figured out how to feel awesome about taking a cold shower. That's a small change. But then that knock-on effect you described, that's what changes everything. I'm the kind of person who steps up and does this. I'm the kind of – so your identity shifts – uh, as you feel successful on even the tiniest of habits. So, boom, that's that's what the subtitle's all about. Amazing, amazing. Uh, in your, um, in the fog behavioral method, you've got B equals map. I'd love to know what the role of motivation plays in all this. A huge role, a huge role. Some people say, oh, BJ Fogg doesn't care about motivation. That's not true. Uh in the tiny habits method, so so b- let me back up a little. There's a model I call the behavior model, and it states that a behavior happens when three things come together at the same time. Motivation for that behavior, ability to do the behavior, and a prompt. And if any one of those is missing, the behavior won't happen. And it's that model that then led to the tiny habits method. So in the tiny habits method, what you do is you pick new habits that you want you pick new habits that you're already motivated to do. In other words, you account for motivation at the beginning, not at the end. The traditional way might be, oh, I'm gonna get myself to run for an hour a day, I hate running, so now I have to figure out how to motivate myself to run. They tack it on at the end. That's the exact wrong way to go. So in the tiny habits method, you deal with motivation up front by picking behaviors that you want. Let's say you're trying to change how you snack. Pick snacks that you want. Um, that you like, that you enjoy. Don't try to get yourself to eat snacks that you don't like. Um, so that's the role of motivation, ideally, is you match yourself with new habits that you want, that you're already motivated to have. And how helpful is something like uh, stacking habits in all this? Yeah, so um, the concept of stacking habits, I believe I originated, I call it anchoring. And other people then have called it piggybacking and stacking and other things. Um, Super, super important. And so the idea is instead of using an external reminder like an alarm or a post-it note to remember to do your habit, you find an existing routine, something you already do in your life to remind you to do the habit. So brushing reminds you to floss. So you anchor, this is why I picked anchoring, you take the new habit and you tie it to something very stable in your life, like an, you know, an anchor, something that won't move. And so you anchor your new habits to something you already do. It's really important because a behavior won't happen without a prompt. That's one of the three components of the behavior model, motivation, ability, prompt. And I gave a whole TED talk on this of how I, bam, there's this eureka moment. It's like, Oh my gosh, you can use your existing routines to be the prompt. And then in Tiny Habits, I call that anchoring. You anchor it to something you already do. Could you give an example of some anchoring habits which you use? Yes. Where shall I start? Okay, I'll just I'll just run through some morning habits. Uh, after my feet touch the floor in the morning as I'm getting out of bed, I say, it's going to be a great day. So yeah, every day my feet, I get out of bed. And so I use that to be the prompt for saying those seven words. It's going to be a great day. And then uh, I walk into the living room and I start the coffee maker. After I start the coffee, well, I pee before that, but I skipped over that part. Uh, After I start the coffee maker, I sit down with, I have a musical instrument, a tenor recorder. It's like a flute. 
and I play the recorder. Now, all I have to do is play a few notes, but I end up doing a lot more than that. So because starting the coffee maker happens every morning, because I want to practice playing music every morning, I was like, oh, it comes right there. And actually I sit there in the dark <laughs> and I play the flute. And it's really, it's like, for me, that's like a meditation because I'm breathing and I'll do different things with the music and I'm just doing it for myself. And so that's that. Uh, another one, after I put my breakfast plate on the kitchen counter, then that's when I get out my vitamins. So after I put my plate on the counter, I turn around and I have a drawer there where I have my vitamins and supplements and I put them in the little dish. Um, and so I put that then on my work desk. So the, and what I found, Joe, was that taking the vitamins was too big a behavior. I had to scale it back. So the tinier version is just putting them in the dish. And then when they're sitting on my work desk, then I just take them throughout the day. So what you, one way you can create new habits is you can just look at what do you do every day. Oh, I start the coffee maker. Oh, I pee. Oh, so I do that. After I pee, I do two push-ups. Oh, I turn off the TV. Oh, I feed the dog. I, you know, what have you. And you can start with those and say, well, what new habit would come right after that? What would be a logical, say you want to read more, and you already every night go out on your patio and sit there, and usually maybe you do social media. So, and so, so after I sit down on the patio, I'm going to open my book. That's going to be the new habit. And of course, you make it easy to do by you don't have to read a whole chapter. You just open the book. But you have the book right there where you sit down. So you design the new habit into your existing life, into your existing routine in that way. Very interesting. Thank you for sharing that. BJ, what books have impacted your life? Uh, so many. So, <laughs> oh, well, let me start with a surprising one. Okay. Um, there's a book called Don't Shoot the Dog, <laughs> which is a, ostensibly an animal uh, training book, but it really is an introduction to behaviorism, but it's really an understanding of how even in training our dogs, our dogs are training us. Okay, so, and it's a really nice introduction to reinforcement and behavior sequencing and the author, Karen Pryor. She's not an academic, but I like her work so much. I invited her to be the keynote at an academic conference I was in charge of at Stanford. So I love that book. And so if people aren't familiar with the principles of behaviorism, I mean, this is a share behaviorism, but it's a good way to get started. So for me, that's uh, a really important book. And then I'll just say it, the Bible. Uh, so growing up in a Mormon home, uh, you have the Book of Mormon, the Bible, and other religious uh, scriptures. And I spent six months in Jerusalem uh, studying uh, history and language and the Bible and all that. And so I would say wisdom literature um, and, you know, in, in the Mormon tradition, you do read and dis ideally discuss, but read wisdom literature every day. Um, and now that might sound a little cliche to say the Bible or, but I think there is a lot of wisdom we can get from the past. I mean, human nature hasn't changed. Humans, I mean, we, we haven't like evolved, like we totally think differently than people 2000 years ago. So human nature is human nature. And the wisdom of 100 years ago, 200 to 2,000 years ago can also apply to today. And I think gleaning now our circumstances are different and our challenges are different for sure. But even you go to the concept of like the mustard seed and how tiny that is, but it can be so transformative. And in some ways, and I don't use this in the book Tiny Habits because I don't want to get super religious on people, but in some ways that's what you're doing with Tiny Habits is you're having faith that something so small can then be transformative, and it can. Um, so that would be a couple examples of, of books that people may not expect um, me to mention, but I think they have influenced me a lot. Uh, let's imagine a hypothetical scenario in which you could impart a short but impactful message from your life, and, you know, the world is about to blow up, you know, it's coming to an end, 
you happen to be on the Freedom Pack podcast, just about to share your final <laughs> wisdom from your life, what would BJ's parting message be? I think it would be, hey, see that, you know, understand, recognize you did a good job. I mean, we're going to like blow up in a few minutes. Is that, and so I give like the final message. Is that the scenario? <laughs> yeah. Okay. So I'm, yeah, I, I would give one of, of hope. It's like, Hey, yeah, your life was challenging, but guess what? You did the best you could and you did a good job. Recognize all the good things you did. Recognize all the challenges you overcame. Don't dwell on the past mistakes. And this totally matches the theme of tiny habits. There's a mindset. It's almost, I don't want to call it a philosophy, uh, but there's a mindset uh, that you change best by feeling good, not by feeling bad. And so you don't set yourself up to feel guilty or to feel like you lack willpower, you lack motivation, all these negative things. Instead, you set yourself up to succeed by making things really, really small and you recognize and embrace all those successes. And so by having, and this shifts and, and gives you a, kind of a positivity bias on the world. And so I think of in the closing moments of this planet, if I were to say anything, it would be that, a kind of reassurance. Like, yeah, don't let all those troublesome things loom large. Recognize all the victories that you've had and recognize that you are fundamentally a good and worthy person. BJ, where can our audience connect with you? Um, BJFogg.com, tinyhabits.com. Uh, I'm on Twitter. It's BJ Fogg. I have a weird name, so it's very easy to, you know, <laughs> BJ Fogg on Twitter. And more recently, I started doing a few things on Instagram, at BJ Fogg. Amazing. Everything will be linked below. BJ, there's so much, so much gold in this conversation. I really cannot thank you enough for the time and for the wisdom and for writing such a fantastic book it's been a real treat for me so thank you joe thank you well guys that wraps up episode 202 of the freedom pact podcast if you enjoyed this episode then please head over to our youtube channel there is a link in the description we're now posting all of our interviews on our YouTube channel, which you can see in video format. If you'd like to interact with us more, we have a healthy, wealthy and wise newsletter, which there is a link in the description for. If you would like to interact with us in other ways, then we are on Instagram at Freedom Pact. You can shoot us an email, freedompact at gmail.com. And guys, once more, thank you so, so much for tuning in. As always, we will be back on Monday for a brand new episode. Thanks, guys.